Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June 2021, we're running our annual Radiothon when we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy your podcast. Good afternoon, listeners, and welcome to The Dogs Program, the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools. We're here every Saturday at noon to promote and defend public education. Unfortunately, Jean will not be able to join us today for her world-famous press release, but hopefully we'll have her back with us next week. But we shall push on nonetheless. Today, we'll be talking about the bags of money that come with the old school ties, and we'll be listening to some alarming research that was discussed in the AU's recent web seminar on capital funding of education, plus an Australian independent school group complaining about disadvantage due to a new funding model. But first, let's have a look at this article by Royce Miller and Ben Schneiders from the Sydney Morning Herald. Bags of money and the old school tie, private schools and their impact on Melbourne. When Fran Bailey moved from Brisbane to Melbourne in 1970, one big cultural difference stood out between the two cities. I was constantly amazed at how often I was asked what school I went to, says the former Liberal MP and Howard era minister. You would be invited to someone's house for dinner and you would meet people and they would invariably ask. Bailey had gone to a Catholic girls' school in inner Brisbane so would get blank looks when she answered All Hallows because her inquisitors didn't know it and couldn't easily make an assessment of her. Men in particular tended to be preoccupied with school-based tribalism, she says. It was a way of placing you in a certain pigeonhole. Melbourne then was an insular town, riven by old sectarian and class enmities, where real power still lay in the Protestant-dominated Melbourne club in Collins Street, and the ALP was at internal war over the vexed issue of state aid to independent schools. Until the 1960s, Australia's independent schools were just that, financially independent. They were denied government funds by a century-old rule backed by the major political parties, that no state aid would be paid to non-government schools. But from 1970, major social and economic change was looming and both the old school tie networks and the no state aid rule were facing big challenges. Soon, Australian taxpayers would be routinely contributing to all schools, government and private, religious or not, poor and rich. 
This week, The Age and The Sydney Morning Herald revealed how the wealth of Australia's top 50 private schools is soaring, helped by surging property values, stock market returns and generous taxpayer funding. They are now worth $8.5 billion, their asset value having grown by more than 40% between 2015 and 2019. The nation's most prestigious private schools have never been more financially secure, nor have they invested so heavily in facilities to attract new students. But how influential really is the old school tie these days, and why are taxpayers paying? A city and its school. A few years before Bailey, John Ridley also moved interstate to Melbourne from Sydney, where he had gone to Barker College, an Anglican school. I wasn't ready for the very strong traditions here, he says, of the clubbiness of his new home, especially the importance of football and schools. There wasn't that passion and loyalty in Sydney. When he started a legal career, he was surprised by the repeated references to Melbourne Grammar and Scotch College in particular. It was clear that going to either opened up pathways. There were law firms that exclusively employed graduates from Melbourne Grammar and Scotch, says Ridley, who was to become Chief of Staff to the then Foreign Minister Andrew Peacock, a Scotch old boy, and sometime later the Victorian Liberal Party Director when another Scotch graduate, Jeff Kennett, led the party. Every Victorian Premier since the 1950s has been privately educated, coming from a mix of the most prestigious high-fee schools and lower-fee Catholic schools. Melbourne Grammar produced four premiers and three prime ministers, Alfred Deakin, Stanley Bruce and Malcolm Fraser. Scotch claims five Victorian premiers, including Sir Henry Lawson, William Shields and John McPherson. At the 2010 state election, both Labor Premier John Brumby and opposition leader Ted Baillieu were old Melbournians or from Melbourne Grammar, or OMs. In Parliament, Kennedy once niggled Brumby and his deputy John Thwaites as the two girls from Melbourne Grammar. Changing times. Graham Samuel, AC, is both an insider and outsider in Melbourne's corporate and political worlds. An old Wesley boy, he was an important player in the city's legal and business scene in the 1980s and 90s, and says there's no doubt Melbourne had a culture of powerful men's-only clubs and school ties when it was the centre of Australian, of Australian corporate activity. In the 1980s, a friend nominated Samuel for a membership of the Athenium Club in Collins Street, but was then asked to withdraw it because Samuel was Jewish. But he says the old school Thai culture largely died out when the entitled old guard failed to adapt to the opening up and restructuring of the economy through the Hawke teaching years, and Sydney took over from Melbourne as the country's corporate capital. Melbourne still has lots of wealth and entrepreneurs, especially in property, but there are a lot of there's a lot of startups, says Samuel. But these people are interested in getting things done not what school you went to. Business and politics and policy are far too tough these days to rely on the relevance of the schools. Terry Moran, AC, 
has had a vantage point from the peak of public service to witness school connections at work. He grew up in working class Fitzroy and Reservoir in the 1950s and 60s and attended the Catholic School Parade College. He recalls his family stories of job advertisements advising Catholics not to bother applying. He eventually headed the Premier's Department in Victoria and then the Prime Minister's Department in Canberra. Moran says social change since the 1960s, including the movement against the Vietnam War and for civil liberties, feminism and multiculturalism, helped break down sectarian and school network barriers, diversifying Melbourne's business and political life. In government, he says, the old school tie was finally buried, ironically, by Kennett. He was so ruthless in a cause. He didn't care about schools. His effect on the public service and other areas was, I will judge you on whether you deliver on what's agreed. Kennett himself says that while social networks inevitably develop through sport, politics, culture and schools, the old school ethos is not what it was 50 years ago. I think it existed when Melbourne was more of a village. But where the old boy network is still working well, says Kennett, is in fundraising and the donations made to schools like Scotch. Moran points to the lag effect of social change, noting that leaders in politics and in law particularly tend to be the older beneficiaries of appointments and promotions from a bygone era. The centres of power in Victoria are in the midst of a shakeout, he says, predicting that the next Premier, if Labor is still in power, will be the first for generations from a state school. The allure of the private school. Yet there remains something attractive about schools that have history. Prime Ministers among their alumni, Harry Potter architecture, stunning sports grounds and learning spaces and good results. Academic TV host and cricket lover lover Waleed Ali went to Wesley College for years 11 and 12 after state primary and secondary schooling in Vermont. He is at pains not to criticise his state school experience but says there was an immediate noticeable difference on arriving at Wesley, the culture of celebrating achievement. He played cricket for the first 11, which meant batting on the manicured front turf of the Pran campus. The grounds, the pitch, they're maintained to a standard better than some district cricket grounds, says Ali, also a columnist for The Age and the Herald. When you play on the turf, on the front turf, you feel like a king. Students are made well aware that their predecessors were leaders in fields as diverse as tennis, swimming and politics. You might think Robert Menzies probably sat in assembly here and Harold Holt and Michael Klim and Mark Philippoussis. You're walking in the footsteps of people who did great things and it becomes easier to imagine yourself being the next version of something like that. I can't explain it fully. It's just in the ether. It's in all the walls. As for the old school tie, I don't have a story of someone opening the door for me because we went to a private school together and saying, come in, old chap, Ali says. But he does acknowledge striking up bonds with former Wesley students. Private schools are really good at tending to those connections. From the moment you arrive, you understand you're part of a continuity. Taxpayers contribute to that continuity, but didn't always.
state aid and accidental winners. Australia in, in 1970 was experiencing a seismic shift in its treatment of private schools. Through the later half of the 19th century, all the Australian colonies legislated to effectively ban state aid. Most of the private schools at the time were different denominations of Christian, a few were Jewish. The strengthening Western liberal view was that all citizens deserved the same rights irrespective of religious belief. The best way for the state to achieve this in education was to run schools itself. However, the Catholic Church, which was building a network of schools, insisted on educating its children in their religious tradition. Australia's predominantly Irish Catholics, most were poor and so were their schools, saw the state aid ban as discrimination against them. Why should state schools be funded and not theirs? A sense of injustice was thus created, a 2006 history of state aid for the Howard government concluded, a grievance still apparent in the 1960s. Then, just days before the 1963 election, Prime Minister Robert Menzies controversially announced the coalition would fund science facilities in independent schools. The Sydney Morning Herald at the time described the grants as an open bid for the preferences of the Catholic-denominated Democratic Labor Party, the DLP, preferences that kept the Australian Labor Party out of power for much of the period since 1949. During the 1972 election campaign, the Whitlam-led ALP upped the ante with a promise to further entrench recurrent federal funding for all schools, including independents, through the establishment of a schools commission. A century after state aid was withdrawn in part to resist Catholics, Menzies and Whitlam reinstated it, in part to court them at election time. The accidental winners were the elite Protestant schools. They had not cried out for more money, nor did they need it. Then, as now, they got it nonetheless. Old Wars and Obligations The findings from The Age and the Herald investigation will reignite the debate about the fairness of public fund government funding to prestigious schools, many of which are spending or have recently spent tens of millions of dollars on elaborate new facilities. That spending is assisted by the $600 million plus in federal subsidies received annually by the top 50 schools. Most of the country's richest private schools are the old Protestant institutions with a smattering of mid-tier Catholic and Islamic schools. Australia is unusual among comparable countries in its taxpayer funding of elite schools. Equivalent private, they're known as public schools in Britain, such as Eton and Harrow, do not receive recurrent public funds. And throughout much of Europe and New Zealand, faith-based schools tend to be part of a state or integrated education system. They receive recurrent public funds, but are bound by the same rules as state schools. Australian funding to non-government schools does not come with the same strict obligations. Government schools here, for example, are required to take in and educate all comers, including those struggling with economic, cultural or physical challenges. Private schools, on the other hand, are able to discriminate through various means, including by charging fees and the setting of enrolment tests 
such vetting of students has a big influence on education results. In March, Federal Education Minister Alan Tudge declared that the school funding wars were now over. The Morrison government's policy is, over the long term, to reduce federal payments to schools deemed overfunded and increase its contributions to underfunded schools. But Chris Bonner, former teacher and fellow with the think tank, the Centre for Policy Development, says many issues remain unresolved in the government's support of private schools. He is calling for a charter of public obligation for all schools that receive government money, including the requirement that schools not discriminate in the students they enrol. Bonner says that if such a charter were introduced, high-end private schools would likely not accept the rules and revert to being truly independent, like in New Zealand and the UK. 170 years after Scotch College opened its doors, the old school tie appears to have lost some of its potency in Melbourne. The debate about state aid, however, seems far from over. We'll have a quick break now and be right back. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. And welcome back, listeners. You're listening to The Dogs Program, the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools. Now we're going to be listening to a senior political economist, Adam Roris, and David Hetherington, who took part in a recent AEU web seminar. And they're talking about some of the capital funding accessible to the elite private schools in Australia. And the figures are mind-boggling. Good evening, everyone. I'm Karina Haythorpe, the Federal President of the Australian Education Union. Welcome to our webinar on Capital Works Funding um, tonight. I'd firstly like to acknowledge that I'm joining this meeting um, tonight um, on Ghana country here in Adelaide and pay my respects to the elders past and present. I also respect their cultural and uh, spiritual connection with this beautiful country. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Tonight's uh, webinar is one that we've been looking forward to for some time. We have a number of guest speakers. We've got Adam Roris, Senior Economist, uh, and author of um, our Capital Works uh, funding report. We have David Hetherington, the Executive Director of the Public Education uh, Foundation. So the issue of Capital Works. Well, this is a critically important issue for all of our schools. Um, what we know is that we have huge unmet need right across the country. We are experiencing booming student enrolment growth, but also there's a significant um, backlog of infrastructure needs within the school system. And uh, the AU decided to commission a report, and uh, I'll now um, go to Adam uh, to do a presentation and take us through your latest report. Thank you, Adam. Well, thank you, Karina. Coming to you from Gadigal country here in Sydney. Uh, pleasure to join you this evening and for this opportunity to um, share with you 
the report. This is the second report I've done for the AU just recently. The first one covered uh, what we call recurrent funding, which is basically the stuff to do with salaries, consumables, the day-to-day uh, funding of schools. And this report looked at the capital investment, the, the money that goes towards buildings and facilities. It can cover things like computers, uh, but it, it generally it's it's the it's the lumpier spend that goes into the both the bricks and the mortar and the equipment and facilities that make up a school. Uh, the report is available. It's on the AU website, so you can read the full report. But this is a very quick summary to help sort of steer a conversation and discussion this, uh, this evening so far as it relates to this report. The first thing to say is that the report itself was based on data that was provided by ACARA uh, to the AEU. Uh, so it's, in other words, it's all it's based on official government data as provided by the states and territories and the other funding school funding authorities uh, to ACARA. So both public uh, school data and, and the non-government private school data is as provided by them um, to ACARA. What I did with that data was uh, take it at a school level, aggregate up to a state and national level. And the averages that I present are the, uh, are the state level averages. So I'm not presenting averages of averages for those geeks out there who might be uh, interested in that. That aside, um, if we get very quickly, uh, there, were some, there were some aspects of the report which are not really surprising. I think most people that, that work in the sector appreciate that schools and facilities and equipment that go and make up the environment of a classroom and more broadly within the school, they actually do have an impact. And the, I really provide in that report a summary of some of the key findings that have uh, been found both in the UK, in UK USA, and, and more broadly in Europe. Um, and they talk about acoustic impacts, they talk about the richness of environment, they talk about lighting, for example, hard surfaces, all the stuff which most teachers know uh, do have an impact and can play a positive role. Of course, we don't talk about um, 50 metre swimming pools and uh, uh, that kind of uh, lavish expenditure because that's not uh, what the experience and the facilities that most schools have. It really is. And the research is very clear on this. You get most bang for your buck when it comes to facilities if you invest in those schools that are lacking rather than investing in schools that already have a lot and you invest, give them even more. And so that, that's very clear from the research. Uh, what I did was, um, in terms of quantifying what, because I'm an economist and I always like to look at, you know, what's the benefit here? And certainly the financiers of education, the treasury departments and the finance departments at a state and at a national level, at a federal level, they always want to know, well, if we spend, well, what do we get for that? And especially when it comes to capital. Um, and the, the research was, was, um, was quite interesting because what it showed was um, if uh, public schools had an equivalent investment, which would be in the order of about $3.8 billion in addition to what they currently have per annum, uh, to help with, with, with um, school improvements, that that would generate about $5.2 billion every year in economic benefits for the country over more than 80 years. And that's, that really covers the lifespan of some of these investments. And it covers also um, the working age of students. You, you, could, you could roll on you know, for as long as uh, you kept investing, but um, an investment in the short to medium term would generate that order of that level of, um, of economic benefit. Um, 
It would also, in the short term and in the context of uh, COVID-19 and concerns about the economy, uh, would generate approximately uh, 37,000 jobs a year. So there is both long-term economic benefit and short-term benefit outside of the sector from that kind of targeted investment as opposed to, to more roads uh, and that type of traditional heavy infrastructure rather than actually government approach, rather than, the, rather than the government approach of focusing on existing schools and existing infrastructure that is operating at the community level and accessible to communities. Um, a key finding of the report um, is that there is a what I call a $21.5 billion gap in capital investment between public and, and, and private schools. In other words, if uh, public schools were to be funded at the same per student rate uh, in terms of, of capital, um, then uh, over, the la over the first six years that the coalition was in power, the, the gap was $21.5 billion. They, they would have they should have got an additional 21.5 billion in order to keep pace with what was going on in the, in the private school sector. Um, the research stops at 2018 because I didn't have data beyond that when I was doing this research uh, last year, it, only, it stopped at 2018. So I did that decade, 2009 to 2018. And those um, first six years of the coalition government, 2013 to 2018, those years, that's, that's the, the gap that, that presents. So it, it, it's not just, it's not small, it's astonishing. Um, if we look at what does that mean um, on a per student basis, um, it, it, it really is over those, over 10 years from 2009 to 18, uh, the, the difference was about $12,450 per student. So it's, it's a really sort of a stark difference there between what the two sectors are experiencing. Another way of understanding this is what I, is, is by, um, I mean, the, the gap was so big that I, I could actually turn it into a ratio of inequity. It was, it was, you know, the order was at least double the spend per student in the private sector compared to the private sector. And in one year, it almost got up to four, four times. So for every dollar in the public school that was being invested in, in, a, uh, in capital in the public school, $4 per student were being invested in the private school. And it's that it's a, that ratio of inequities is is an utterly uh, well shameful indicator of, of what can only really be seen as some kind of discrimination, uh, unspoken perhaps, uh, but certainly clear. And one has to even wonder whether it's even unintended because these figures are not new; they've been out there. And you have to wonder what's going on with that level of uh, of bias. The cumulative investment gap, capital investment gap, over the uh, ten-year period exceeds eight thousand dollars for students for all jurisdictions except the ACT. Uh, New South Wales, Victoria, and Queensland have the largest share of that capital investment gap um, over all ten years. The report does prov provide detail on state and territory uh, capital expenditure, and and New South Wales, Victoria, and Queensland have have that largest share, as I just said. I finished the report with some recommendations. Um, the first one is not a startling one, as you could probably imagine, um, given what I've just said. And I've recommended, my recommendation is that that um, uh, the minimum per student investment should match private schools um, and that state and territory governments would, would commit a minimum cash, uh, minimum capital investment per student that would equal that private school um, investment. 
secondly, the second recommendation is that um, there should be a cessation of capital support for private schools from the government. They have their own sources. Uh, state and territory governments in particular, uh, who have responsibility for their own government schools, uh, it makes no sense to be, continue to make any forms of contributions to capital investments within the private school sector when there is such an inordinate um, gap between what their own schools are receiving and, and have compared to that uh, to the to the average spend in that private school sector. Um, and again, I think that is just really common sense. Trying to understand if we try and understand how do we get here and then how do we sort of work our way back from this uh, dismal uh, situation in terms of public policy and, and, and policy to do with, with such a vital uh, service as schooling for our, our nation's children, it seems to me that we need to play school communities, and, and by that I mean the teachers, students, as well as parents and, and those community members that use schools. It needs to be coordination to... A, Involving those, involving those members to identify critical gaps. And it, it seems that if you leave it to bureaucracy, it's too easy for uh, blind spots to emerge. Uh, it's too easy for problems, not, for problems to become invisible and, and somehow bring a spotlight to those. Um, we need to find a way through there. And I think that involvement uh, is, is essential. And the fourth recommendation, I guess, is one way of, that, that I think systems can uh, respond to that, uh, and they ought to respond to that if they are serious about both understanding where the problems are in terms of buildings and facilities and equipment and having real-time information about that, not in a month or two months or three months further down the track. We know now, uh, and young people in particular, but I think all of us uh, have developed uh, a capacity to use the, the digital solutions via things like mobile apps. And I think our country, like so many others, has in the COVID crisis has really uh, shown that we can put that technology to work. And I think there's a real place for putting this technology to work uh, within our schools. Why don't the departments of education make an app available to all parents, to teachers, to community members, so they can quickly report a problem, quickly identify and flag it when it remains a problem, flag it when it is serious and flag it when it needs attention. And that should not just be the responsibility of a principal. Uh, I think there's, there's, I would argue, but I'd be very interested to hear what people have to say about this here tonight. Uh, I think there's a place there for uh, getting that, that communication and that identification early and by as many people as possible. The final recommendation I'm floating. Uh, I've got no idea how this might work, whether it's even a really particularly good idea. But again, begin trying to think of how we can engage communities uh, at the school, but also at a higher regional and state levels uh, to deal with these problems, to bring parents in, to bring communities in, and to bring teachers in to uh, into a place where the, 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 the challenges, the problems, as well as the good news stories can be uh, highlighted. So in particular, so what's wrong, what's not working, what needs to be addressed uh, is visible, not just to the bureaucracy, but also to, to, to school communities and that they are in a better place then to um, exert the, the pressure that might be needed and the campaigns that might be needed to actually um, work to, towards a better place. Thank you very much, Adam. I appreciate that presentation. 
Um, David uh, Hetherington. David, I'll come to you for a response um, uh, to Adam's research, but also uh, some thoughts on what the funding uh, inequity in terms of capital works actually means for public education. Thanks very much, Corinna. Um, I too would like to acknowledge uh, that I'm here sitting with you, uh, joining you from Gadigal land, and I'd like to pay respects to uh, Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging and to elders uh, on all the lands on which you are on. Uh, first, I'd like to just commend Adam on the work. Um, I think it's a really important piece of work in a part of the education debate that is somewhat under-examined. Um, lots of consideration goes to recurrent funding and school resourcing standard and those questions. Um, but the capital gap is part of our education funding debate in Australia um, that I think sadly we have come to take for granted, certainly that the gap exists and, and not a lot has been done about it. So I think it's it's excellent that Adam, you know, in conjunction with the AAU, is keeping this issue on the agenda. I'm one of the geeks that Adam mentioned who likes to think about things like averages on averages. Um, and I've, I've looked at funding over a period of time and there are a number of things in the report that don't surprise me, but I have to say there was one that really shocked me. Um, the ratio of inequity that Adam has developed that tells us that there are periods in which public school students are receiving 27 cents of capital investment for every dollar that, that a student in a private school receives. I mean, that, that's extraordinary. Um, we, we already know how, how well-resourced non-government schools are in recurrent terms, but the notion that a student is getting four times as much in terms of the capital investment in the school in which they sit is just, frankly, incredible and shameful, I think, was the word Adam used. Um, some of the other uh, figures that Adam mentioned are less surprising to me. So the $21.5 billion shortfall over the period of the coalition's time in government is, is something I would have expected there or thereabouts. And, and when you break that down on a per student level, the $8,000 gap between um, non-government and government school students is, is also sadly something that, that we might have expected. Um, we did a piece of work at the Public Education Foundation looking at the cost of education inequality through a slightly different lens, but also focusing on the, on the bottom quartile of students in our case. And we costed that at over a six year period from 20, 2009 to 15 at about $20.3 billion. That, that wasn't including the kind of additional um, add-on benefits that Adam has included around jobs created through Capital Works and the like. But I think we are talking numbers of incredible scale. And I think the other point um, is that there is a, a really, really enormous return here from making this public investment in public schooling. So if you're investing $3.8 billion per year in capital works and getting a $5.2 billion return per year over 80 years, you'll take that any day of a week. Um, and, you know, from the point of view of treasuries, this, this should be a no-brainer. Um, sadly, though, we see, um, we see that um, the Commonwealth Government continues to um, increase the gap in the recent budget. Um, the forward estimates had 29% growth in in um, Commonwealth spending on public schools compared to 26% for, sorry, 29% for non-government schools compared to 26% for public schools. And that's at a time when the public school enrolment share is growing. Um, another thing I liked about the report, um, I think it's intuitive to all of us that um, 
proper investment in facilities in facilities leads to better education outcomes. But but Adam's really drawn together the research that that substantiates that. You know, the US and the UK research that says it's not just about buildings. Um, it's about um, technology, amenity, even community use of, of um, school facilities, I thought was really um, interesting. So as an economist myself, I, I, I appreciate and enjoyed that evidence base being brought together. I might just finish with a couple of anecdotes that that kind of maybe humanise or personalise some of, some of the, the stories. Um, uh, these are from New South Wales. I know Sharon and David are going to talk about Queensland and, and Victorian examples, but uh, the Public Education Foundation, we've been showcasing a program out of Bombardary High School in the New South Wales South Coast. China, we've got a terrific graduate from there who's, who's building an alumni program with us. But at the same time as we're doing this, um, there are consistent stories in the media about how the roof leaks. I mean, this is a high school, a regional high school in New South Wales where they can no longer use you know, parts of the school because literally there is water coming through the roof. Um, another anecdote I'd share, I've been the president of a PNC at a local uh, primary school here in Sydney. Um, the, the backlog that principals face on um, facilities management um, requests was up to five, six, seven years. So if it wasn't um, an urgent kind of endangering um, situation, uh, we, we were looking at getting um, insulation installed in the ceiling voids of a very old building. Um, and we were told that they're currently dealing with the backlog, the, the requests that were entered in 2012-13, and this was something that was happening in 20, 2019. So that's the kind of real-world things, I think, that many of the people on the webinar will know about. And lastly, I'll just talk about the effort of governments um, to, to effectively spend less on public education by, by um, closing school sites and therefore overcrowding other sites um, we had some we had some data come out, and you said I was recently there's a there's a primary school at Carlingford West which has 1,192 students over capacity, Riverbank Public School 1,083 over capacity, um, Chatswood High School 33% over capacity. They had 17 demountables put in over the summer break. Um, meanwhile, up the road, Knox Grammar School received over a three-year period 244 million dollars in private income, which was topped up by 28 million dollars for one school. Um, in additional public funding. So, you know, these are some of the scale of things we're dealing with. They won't be surprises to many people on the chat tonight, um, but I think it's really important that we keep these stories in the debate. And I, I commend, as I say, Adam and, and the union for, for continuing to push it. Thanks. So we were just listening to an excerpt from the AEU's seminar. You can find the full seminar online at the AEU's Facebook page. It's titled The Infrastructure Public Schools Need. So if you do a search for that, you should be able to find the entire seminar. You heard there Karina Haythorpe, Adam Roris and David Hetherington. We'll have a quick break and then we'll be right back. You're listening to The Dogs. <laughs> Did you know that each donation over $2 you make to 3CR's Radiothon is tax deductible? That means that when you're doing your tax return business, you can claim your 3CR donation as a legitimate tax deduction. To make a pledge to this year's Radiothon, call the station on 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. 3CR Radiothon. Community-powered radio. 
their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. We're proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. And welcome back, listeners. You're listening to The Dogs program on 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. Now, before going into this article about independent school groups complaining about disadvantage, I'd like to just play a short excerpt from an episode of Q&A that took place in March 2020. You raised the question of equity, and we've actually got a ton of questions on equity tonight from various students in our audience. We're going to meet a couple of them just now. Ruby, you're in Year 7, I think, at Randwick Girls. Hi, you're oh. very small sitting down, so do you want to stand up? Yeah. Uh, that'll make this easier. You've seen your own school, but you've also seen other schools, some private schools. How do they compare? Well, the, um, my school, it's amazing, but there's like a lot of cosmetic issues. There's, the whole school is made of concrete and it's just bare exposed concrete. There's a lot of the classrooms are ill-equipped for modern learning and barely any of them have aircon. But I went to Skeggs and... <laughs> Sorry, I wasn't meant to say Skeggs, but anyway. <laughs> Another um... This is a private school. You went to have a look there. How did yes. it compare? Uh, it was incredible. Like, the grounds were huge and it was so beautiful and everything was shiny. They even had, like, a life-size skeleton with, like, organs and everything. And I just couldn't understand why schools like that are getting funding over schools like mine. OK. And you were, what... <laughs> Before I leave you, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be the Prime Minister of Australia. Okay, there we go. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> Emily, uh, would you like to stand up as well? You've moved to Sydney from Griffith in regional New South Wales. Uh, compare the schooling experience there with uh, the Big Smoke. What stands out in particular about the comparison in private school schooling here and public school schooling in um, rural New South Wales is that there is a clear disparity between the resources, the facilities and the outside of school educational opportunities. So for myself, I was unable to access debating competitions because of the area I lived in and because of my location. And so for me, that raised the question of not why did I want to go to a private school, but rather how can I further my educational opportunities? And it's things like being here tonight and being able to be part of the discussion and debate, which prove that rural students are not able to access these things. And despite what's being done in terms of Gonski and Aurora College, which I know was Adrian's initiative, there's still no other rural students here. And I would like to see in the future so many more who are able to attend and able to have these educational opportunities. Okay. <laughs> um, 
Obviously, a huge number of questions on this tonight. You're the school captain at Cheltenham. That's uh, Eloise, what's your question? Um, so I go to a public school and I see many non-government schools that have uh, Olympic-sized indoor swimming pools and world-class theatres and baronial-style libraries. And I see that they, sh they don't need public funding, but I still see them getting a lot of resources and funding from the government. And at the same time, I see schools and public schools like my own that are sometimes not able to give basic learning resources like textbooks because we simply do not have enough. How is this fair? And why are we funding privilege, not educational outcomes? Okay. Adrian, particularly, I'm going to put this to you. Uh, is this what the Gonski reforms were all about? Well, the Gonski reforms were actually about, were about needs-based funding. So... Um, you know, schools resourcing standard, you know, it's quite technical, but every student gets funded based on, on need. And then if you had a particular characteristic, a particular disadvantaged characteristic, that there would be extra funding and then that funding would go whether, whichever school you went to. So needs-based funding delivers funding to, to students uh, um, who need it. Now, there are existing disparities around this school resourcing standard, who's above it, who's below it, and there are all these transition periods. So, you know, it's, it's, it's complicated. But so the system has the, it's gotten better. Before you go it's on, not, though... It's not fixed. Because the Australian Curriculum Assessment and Reporting Authority says actually that over the past decade, public funding to private schools has risen nearly twice as fast as public funding to public schools. Mm -hmm. That's not quite what you're saying. Well, I mean, I'm not here to defend the Commonwealth Government, either <laughs> the current one or the previous one. <laughs> I, that's not my job here. Uh, the New South Wales Government that I was um, a part of, uh, we certainly did increase the amount of money that we spent on public schools. And the reason we signed up to Gonski particularly is because when I saw the numbers as Minister about which schools would benefit the most, the ones who benefited the most were country schools, regional and remote schools, huge beneficiaries. Small the schools. second biggest beneficiaries were Western and Southwestern Sydney. And the, the ones who benefited the, the, the least were the ones you would expect to benefit the, the least. That's why we signed up for it. That's why we took the measures we took, to make sure that we could invest in it. And, and I think, there, look, funding is not fixed by any stretch of the imagination, but it is much better than it was 10 years ago. And I've got to say, Simon, um, Simon Birmingham and uh, Malcolm Turnbull fixed it um, again a little bit. By reducing some of the, the overfunded so non-government schools. Yeah, they, they reduced the funding that was going, the overfunding that was going to some non-government schools. So you know, I've got to give them credit as well. It's far from fixed, um, but it is an improvement on what it was. Can, can I just I jump think in Eddie here? Eddie wanted to jump in here. Do, oh. It's just about the formula, though. Can I just add something to the formula, sure. super quickly? Um, so, so Adrian's described the schooling resource standard, blah blah blah. Let's just call that a school's fair funding level, okay? What the Commonwealth Government has now done is said that every non-government school by 2023 will get to 100% or more of their fair funding level, but public schools will only ever get to 95% of their fair funding level. That's in the formula. That's baked in. That, that inequality is now baked in based on the arrangements that the Commonwealth Government's made with the states and territories, that, that's at the heart of the unfairness. So, so to be specific, how would you fix it? How would you change well, it? Well, all schools should get to 100% of their, their fair funding level So, so over how time. Would you, where would you find the money from? Well, you have to do these things over time. You have to... Uh, at the moment, 
Um, by 2023, every non-government school will be at 100% or more and no public school will ever get there. No, sorry, 99% of public schools will never get there under this funding model. Would you then change the process through which independent schools are adjusted? Well, I'm not going to make up a funding model on TV on your show tonight. But you'd be familiar with the arguments about doing it based on postcodes versus uh, the actual income of the parents. That actually is irrelevant to this. I think that's a fairer measure, taking a parent's actual income is a fairer measure, but that's not the question here. The question is, do we get all schools to their fair funding level, or is it OK that public schools never get there under this model? So, so but, but, I can't give you a free pass on this. Will you have a policy for fixing that by the next election? Well, we've got two years till the next election. And last, our, our last uh, education policy had $14 billion extra for public schools. Now, that excerpt from Q&A featured public school students as well as uh, Shadow Minister for Education, Tanya Plibersek, and former New South Wales Education Minister and Director of the Gonski Institute, Adrian Pickley. Now, Pickley referred to the positive change affected by Simon Birmingham, which is ironic considering he was quickly removed from that portfolio after suggesting that private schools might be getting too much taxpayer funding. Uh, but referred to in that excerpt is the policy to change the funding model to directly reflect the parental income. And independent school groups are up in arms about this change, claiming that this model brings them the biggest slice of disadvantage. This article is by National Education and Parenting reporter Connor Duffy. A rebel group of outer metropolitan and regional independent schools claim a new federal government funding model designed to make the system fairer will do the opposite. And they say they have the polling showing it'll be a vote changer. From next year, school funding will be based on the direct median income, DMI, of parents calculated using tax office data rather than the old system that linked student home addresses with ABS survey information about socioeconomic status. According to an analysis by Independent Schools Australia, 23% of schools will get more money from the government, 42% will stay the same and 35% will get less. A portion of the schools that believe they will lose under the new system have set up a new group called the Coalition of Metropolitan and Outer Regional Schools, Comerisa, claiming 73 schools as members. The group claimed that outer suburban and regional schools, which tend to have lower fees, will disproportionately get less money. It claims funding for Australia's richest schools will stay the same. There are 24 schools, all of them are inner city, Sydney, Melbourne, and I think there are three in Perth that receive no funding losses, uh, Commerce Secretary Bruce Simons said. Our parents are angry. We've done the research and we've actually surveyed parents across a raft of different electorates, in particular marginal seats. Focus group research commissioned by Commerce and carried out by political research firm Redbridge Group surveyed the mood of marginal electorates in New South Wales, Victoria, Tasmania and Queensland. It found parents feared the worst economic pain from COVID-19 was yet to come, but were committed to sending their children to private school, even if their budgets were tight. 
These parents are extremely emotionally invested in the school community and find it difficult to contemplate withdrawing their child from the school, the research found. According to Redbridge, being forced to do so by a government funding model could be a vote changer. One parent said of the new funding model, that sends shivers down my spine. For now, Independent Schools Australia and most state-based lobby groups aren't joining the Rebel Schools Group in opposing the change. But overnight, Independent Schools Queensland broke ranks. Independent Schools Queensland Executive Director David Robertson told News Corp he was concerned the DMI model had, dis had a disproportionately negative impact on some regional schools. The influential Catholic sector has supported the model as an intrinsically fairer a, as intrinsically fairer, a view shared by Federal Education Minister Mr. Tudge, uh, Alan Tudge ahead of next year's rollout. It's an equitable system, Mr. Tudge said, and it's been one that has been agreed by every state and territory in the country, along with the peak independent and Catholic school bodies. He pointed to a $1.2 billion transition fund to be rolled out to help schools and defended the treatment of the country's richest elite schools, saying that each of their students would receive a quarter of the government funding of a student at one of the so-called rebel, rebel schools. Independent schools are already receiving the least amount of government funding on a per-student basis, Minister Tudge said. Anxiety in the suburbs. As the polling makes clear, school funding is a vital issue for voters and at Canterbury College in Waterford, southeast of Brisbane, parents are worried about next year. Aiko Eva has six kids to educate and if fees increase at Canterbury College, he'll have to make some tough choices. It'll be quite a stretch and quite an inconvenience for myself and my family to potentially have my kids go to different schools. It is a concern shared by fellow school parent Linda Henry. I myself travel 45 to 50 minutes to get my children here to this college, so any change is going to have a huge impact on families, she said. Canterbury College School Principal Dan Walker has been active in the rebel group. The biggest slice of disadvantage under the new rules comes to those living in outer metropolitan emerging suburbs, the high growth corridors and in regional Australia. Mr Walker's school is in one of the fastest growing regions in Australia, taking in families from Brisbane and the northern Gold Coast. He is worried he will have to raise fees or cut staff to cover the expected funding shortfall. A figure in the order of between 2.5 million and 3 million over the next decade is what we're factoring in, Mr Walker said. But Minister Tudge said the school had done well since the coalition came into power in 2013. They've had significant funding increases since we've been in office and they'll continue to have funding increases locked in all the way out to 2029. He said there's now better access to the data needed to calculate a family's capacity to pay and that this accuracy meant a change was in order. If you've got wealthier families, you attract less money. If you have poorer families, you attract more money, he said. Mr Walker is a member of Comersa. The group is organised partly out of Victorian school Bacchus March Grammar. It's one of the fastest growing schools in that state and according to its annual report filed to the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profit Commission had a healthy surplus in 2019. However, its principal Andrew Neal said the school 
had cut the number of prep classes from 12 to 8 in 2022 and was prepared for a public fight. Our people are Menzies' forgotten people. They are Howard's battlers. And they do ask the question, why a conservative government is doing this to them? So here is the example of the self-interested, entitled middle class threatening to use its voter base to dictate education funding policy for the good of small, not for the good of all. Well, the dogs would argue that in regional centres is where we should be building public schools and we should be funding public schools so that you don't have to travel 45 to 50 minutes to take your child to the local state school, which offers a gold standard education because it will be funded properly. But we've run out of time today. Uh, Hopefully we'll have Jean and everyone back next week. Best wishes to Jean and family. Uh, You can find out more about the dogs by going to www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. And thank you again to everyone who has donated to 3CR's Radiothon this year. You can continue to donate just because it's outside of donation week or pledge week doesn't mean you can't donate to the station and keep 3CR and the dogs on air for another year. But until next week, take care of each other and bye for now. Alive as you and me 
Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died.